so we are getting near the end of our series, but we have been talking about God's plan of, of how the gospel would go forth and the message of salvation become known in the world and how he would make it known through his people, through the church. So we're talking about what happens now. Now that Jesus is raised from the dead, how will God get that news and invite people into eternal life? And we're look, we've been looking at different aspects of that mission. My main point today is God has given the church, um, and a ch- the church as seen in local congregations, has given the church to be a counter-cultural community that holds out the truth of the gospel amidst a world that has lost sight of God. That word countercultural. I want to think about that for a minute. And in fact, I want to go to the formal definition. A counterculture is a culture whose values and norms of behavior differ substantially from those of mainstream society, sometimes diametrically opposed to mainstream cultural mores. My point is that is the church. We are a culture whose values and norms are different from the mainstream culture we see out there. And that we will look different. We talked about last week how we are the salt of the earth. We are distinctive in our lives in a way that runs counter to what we see out in the rest of society and the world. And sometimes, because we're distinctive, our message last week was God can open up a door. It can open up a conversation. If someone asks for the reason for the hope that we have, we can give them the answer. It's because we found Jesus and the difference he's made in our life. It can open opportunities. Today, I want to kind of talk about the other side is as as we live distinctive lives and hold out a message that runs counter to that of the world, we will ultimately face opposition. And we have to be ready to to continue that message, even if it goes against the the larger message that our our world wants to promote. And I want to start by looking at a psychological experiment that happened in the 1950s, organized at Swarthmore College, 1951, by Solomon Ash. And he only used all male college students because that's what happened in the 50s. And, uh, but, but it's a fascinating little experiment. And what it was is, so he had a group of eight college students. And he, they didn't have PowerPoint, so he used poster boards. But he basically would show a picture and ask a question. And the purported thing they were testing was their vision. But they would show this picture about three lines, and it is which line matches the the single one, A, B, or C. So let me ask you, what, what would you say? Which line matches? Pretty unanimous. And so when they did this experiment with the control group, over 99% of the time, they were able to get the answer right. It's, it was not meant to be a visual trick or anything like that. But the real experiment was for just one 
of those young men. The re- seven of the eight were in on it. But one little sucker, right? Him. It was all about him. And so what they did is the seven confederates were, were they planned it out ahead of time, were, were going to give the wrong answer. And this guy was going to be last. And so instead of C, each one would go through the answer and say B, 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 B. And then, so he was the eighth guy. And the question is, is what would he say? And what Ash determined is 36% of the time, the, the, the lone guy went along with the incorrect answer. So not always. Again, it was obvious enough that you'd say, no, it's C. But still, where in normal times they would never get it wrong, 36% of the time they went along with the incorrect answer. And out of, so they did this multiple times with different people, and they had multiple questions that were very similar. For 75%, at least once, went along with the wrong answer, went against the majority. Um, that what, Yeah, at least they, on at least one question, went along with the majority, even though it was obviously the wrong answer. And later, when they did the interviews, they, they, they said they weren't just, you know, going along with the crowd, even though they knew it was wrong. They, they said, well, I, I, that's what I saw. In other words, having everyone say B, 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 they started to see it that way as well. How our ability to see and determine the truth is determined by the people around us. We are, at least to some extent, we need each other to see to the truth of things. And if it's clear in a case like where it's, you know, visually you could see it's different, how much more when it comes to invisible issues like morals and, and spiritual truths, how much more are we easily persuaded by the, the, what we hear from the culture around us. That we can get persuaded of something that just is not true at all because everyone believes it. Maybe you've heard of the idea of groupthink, right? If you get around a certain group of people and all, they all think the same way, they can come to some pretty crazy ideas because they reinforce each other in those wrong ideas. They won't step out of their group and consider other possibilities. Our perceptions of the truth are dependent on who we gather with. Now, here's one other interesting thing, Park. Um, out of, and this is where I think it applies to what I want to say today is they ran the experiment where you had the seven again, and they had just one of the confederates give the right answer. So B, 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 C, B, B. If only one other person gave the right answer, it eliminated almost all the incorrect perceptions. Sometimes all you needed to hear is one voice speaking the truth. 
And that gave you the permission, the ability to see to it yourself. That is why God has established his church. We are that voice. When it comes to the things of God, the spiritual truths, we are set up to, to declare the truths of, of Scripture, to declare the, the good news of Jesus amidst a culture who's lost sight of God, amidst a culture who's so blind they can't understand or see the things of God. It says in 2 Corinthians 4 that, that the, the, the God of this world, the God of this age, in other words, God's enemy, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the gospel of the glory of Christ. This world, all they're hearing is be, 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 be. And they've come to believe it. They're blinded to the truth because of that. And so what has God done? He's given his church to be servants. For what, what do we proclaim? We don't proclaim ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. We, it might for some people, be that lone voice that says, there is a God out there. You're not a random accident there's a God that made you, a God that loves you. He loved you so much, he sent his son in pursuit after you. Even if you were the only one, he would have come after you. He loves you that much. There is a God who's shown us how to live life. We are that lone voice in the world. How do we respond when our message goes against that of the larger culture and we feel opposition and pressure to conform our message to that what the world would say. That leads us to our text. Acts chapter 4. Actually, I'm going to back up to chapter 3 for a minute. And, and in chapter 3, Peter and John, one day, the church had been kind of gathering at the temple courtyard and that was one place where they're public. It's the only place they could all publicly gather because they'd grown to be into the hundreds and thousands. And so Peter and John are on their way and they come across a, a paralyzed man, man paralyzed from birth. And the guy's asking for money and instead Peter says, silver and gold I, not, I have not, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ, rise and walk. Peter is led by the Holy Spirit to be bold and invite this young man or this man who'd never walked before to rise up and walk. And he does. There on the spot, the Lord heals him. And so this man is healed. He's, he's skipping around the room, right? Like, it's just, it's just awesome. You can imagine the joy of someone who's never done that. And it draws a crowd. Well, Peter, he's a preacher, right? A preacher sees a crowd. What do you do? Oh, you know, he can't help it. He, he starts talking about Jesus and why this man is healed. Let me tell you what happened. Let me tell you about Jesus. And he, he begins proclaiming Jesus died and resurrected. Well, the authorities, the religious authorities, it's their temple, kind of get a little upset. So they arrest Peter and John. And Peter and John are then held overnight. And then they stand before the Sanhedrin, the council. And the, the council is very concerned about what's happening. And, um, but it says they're, they're kind of impressed with Peter and John. I mean, these are Galileans. And they're fishermen. 
How could they, they speak so well? And it says they were ordinary men who'd been with Jesus. Jesus had changed their life. And, and so ultimately, though, they tell them, we do not want you to speak or even utter the name of Jesus. They think they can intimidate these men into shutting up about Christ. And, you know, they think they're, by their authority, by their status, that they can, they can cow them into to being quiet and um, intimidate them into silence. So they gave him a clear thing. Do not speak about Jesus. We, you know, he, he's dead. He's gone. They especially were disturbed by, by about the Jesus, talking about Jesus being raised from the dead. You know, we thought we dealt with this problem. Why do you keep bringing it back up? And they're told that. And I love how Peter approaches his answer. I mean, these are, these are the elders of Israel the elders of his people. And he even shows a measure of respect. He says, judge for yourselves. What should we do? Should we follow what God tells us to do or what you tell us to do? Tell us, O oh, elders of Israel, should we obey God or should we obey man? You know, he puts, puts it in a question form. And ultimately, they send them away. They would want to punish them, but they can't because the, the healing that took place, the crowds are so amazed by the, the man that had been healed. So they can't punish them yet. They'll, they'll, they will later. Uh, but they send them away with a very stern warning, do not talk about Jesus. So then Peter goes back to the church. It says they go back to their own. They belong to this com- community of people. And the question begins be, how will the church respond? Peter and John, well, they were, they were apostles. They're bold. How will the rest of the disciples respond when they hear this news? And um, Peter and John tell the story. They report on what had happened. And it, it says that the disciples are united together as a group. And in fact, if you read the King James Version, um, you find out that they were so united, uh, this, this might be hard to believe, they, they were so united that they were able to share and get by with just one automobile. It says that they were all in one accord. So I, I, I dedicate that joke to, to Phil. <laughs> yep, there you go. Um, but anyways, they, it says they lifted their voice in one accord up to God. So their first response of the church when they, they hear this is they pray. And it is not a prayer of desperation. Oh, Lord, our enemies are against us. Oh, Lord, save us. They, they begin by praising God. They, they affirm and remember that God is sovereign, that God reigns, that God is righteous, that he's the rightful king. They know God is in charge and they declare it. It says, you know, you've made everything we see. And they also affirm that, you know, God, you are the one who spoke in the past. We, we put our trust in you. We affirm that you, you know what you're doing. The second, and by the way, we're, we're tonight we're going to have that prayer time. And, and we're going to do the same. We're going to affirm that we trust in God and then invite God to, to do something in our midst. Um, the second part of their response is they turn to Scripture to put this into perspective. 
And specifically, they turn to Psalm 2, which talks about why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain. Psalm 2 is about how the rulers and the kings of the nations rebel against the kingship of God. That they don't want to be ruled by God. Instead, they want to rule and declare themselves to be their own authority. And that's the theme of Psalm 2. And so they, they cite that, and, and it's thinking about what does the core issue that the world has with Christianity? It's that they want to live by their own rules and not be bothered with teaching that people owe owe to God their worship and obedience. That in every era, the nations, the kingdoms of this world are going to resist the authority of the kingdom of God. I, I don't know if you know the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a German Lutheran pastor in the 1930s. And he saw the rise of the National Socialists under Hitler. And what's interesting is how the, the National Socialists or the Nazis responded to or treated the church. In, in the Soviet Socialist Republic, they tried to stamp out Christianity. They, they, they just went against it. But in, in Germany, the National Socialists went a different route. Instead, they wanted to co-opt it. They wanted to tie together the church and, and their message. In other words, they wanted to, to control the message. And so on the screen is a, a propaganda poster that they had. And, and in, it ties together the, the great Lutheran, uh, Martin Luther, you know, the great Lutheran hero. And it says, the poster says, Hitler's fight and Luther's teaching are the best defense for the German people. Um, one practical way they tried to control the church and control its message is, is through the racial policies that the N Nazis had. And they, so, so therefore, um, therefore church leaders whose parents or grandparents had conferred, converted from Judaism to Christianity were considered Jewish and according to the 1933 civil service law, no longer officially permitted to serve in those positions. Do you understand what that means? So if you had Jewish blood, you couldn't be a Christian pastor, according to the National Socialists. And so they wanted to do that. Then they went further, and it, it says the, the main guy in charge, he was vowing to purge Protestant churches of all Jewish influence, including getting rid of the Old Testament. And what's sad, most, if, much if not most, of the German Lutheran church went along. And only a few, only a small remnant stood up and said, no, we can't go that way. Our authority goes to God, not, not, not you. And what you're saying is not of the word. And so Dietrich Bonhoeffer and a few other pastors formed what's called the Confessing Church. They separated from the larger German Lutheran Church and they, they, they became the lone voice declaring God as, the, as the, the only ruler of the church. Um, Bonhoeffer formed illegal seminaries where he trained other pastors. Um, they, the Nazis kept shutting him down. Eventually, Bonhoeffer was put in prison and hanged just a little before the, the Germans lost the war. Sometimes we're going to be that lone voice declaring within the world, 
the right answer is C. So the second response of the church is they looked to Scripture to put in perspective what they were going through. The third response is that um, they remember how the world responded to Jesus. And it talks about how um, they realized that, that Jesus was um, put to death by uh, that Herod and Pontius Pilate worked together. In other words, the, the, the Jewish king Herod and the Roman governor Pilate, they colluded against your servant Jesus. They, they worked against them, the one that they anointed both. And, and so it showed how the world almost united against them. And they said, that's what we're facing. We're seeing the powers of this world go against what's happening in the church. Jesus told his followers that they will be called before councils and they will be called before secular kings and that they're to give the, the answer, that they'll stand strong in faith. Uh, Matthew ten seventeen talks about how, how that would happen. It says, be ready to give an answer. Don't worry ahead of time what you're going to say. The Holy Spirit will speak through you in that moment. But before it's all over, you will be called to, to, to answer. You will face this kind of opposition. So, so those are the three things they do as part of their initial part of their prayer. And then fourth, only then do they make their requests. Now think about if you were them. What would you ask God to do? Right? What would be your request of God? in light of what happened, wouldn't you be thinking, well, Lord, protect us. Oh, Lord, save us from our enemies. Oh, Lord, overthrow our, overthrow our enemies. Help us. Avenge us. You, know, you would expect requests like that, but that's not how they pray. And in fact, it's fascinating that they, they really ask for two things. Um, first of all, enable your servants to speak with boldness. Lord, don't, don't let fear grab a hold of us. May we be bold in speaking the truth. Give us that boldness. And the second thing they pray for, Lord, do more signs. Right? Remember what caused it all? The, the healing of the, the beggar at the temple gate. Right? That got it all started. He said, Lord, do more of that. Give us more opportunities through these signs and wonders to declare the truth. Open up these doors. God arranged it. It was part of God's bigger plan that his people would stand for the truth in opposition amidst a dominant culture that doesn't want to hear it. It's part of his plan that our, our message will be challenged and opposed, at least at times, by the culture we live in. That we have to um, stand in faith that we have to exercise our faith, we have to ask for boldness, that, that we could live up to it and we could hold faithful. The truth is, you only know what you believe when you're pressured to give it up. How do you know that you're not just believing just to go along with everyone else? You only know what you believe when you face pressure to give up that belief. The pattern... Moreover, the power of our witness increases when we hold on through trials and opposition. 
You know, it may not feel comfortable in the moment, but there's actually more power to our witness when we stand, stand strong through such opposition. That's God's plan. And they, they pray for boldness. They pray for more opportunities to declare the message. And God affirms their prayer. I love how it says, um, it says that the place shook. I, I don't know if God sent an earthquake or, or what that felt like, right? But it says the place where they gathered, it was shaken in some way. And it says they all began just to preach the word with boldness. Like, like they were encouraging one another in all of that. The world we live in is determined to define its own meaning and truth. It's determined to find its own way and reject the authority of God. Um, we are placed in this world to, to point people to the truth, um, to, to point people to the right answer. We need, we need to declare the truth for, e for each other, for that matter. We can only see the truth because we need each other to, to see through things. And we need to speak truth for the people of this world. And sometimes the church struggles to do that. I'm reading a book by Alyssa Childers. She is a, um, she was at one point a member of Zoe Girl. I don't know if anyone knows that, that group. Um, vaguely familiar with it. But she grew up in the church and she believed from the age of seven. Um, and so she, she was taught all the, the general church truth stuff. And at one point, she uh, ended up in a church that got a new pastor who was very dynamic and engaging with people. And he started a new group specifically for people to think through some of the deep issues. And she wasn't personally invited to be a part of it. And so she went. Well, it turns out this pastor really was going to undermine her faith. And here's what she says. She says, meeting after meeting, every precious belief I held about God, Jesus, and the Bible was placed on an intellectual chopping block. Let me see if I can find it here. And, and hacked to pieces, identifying, him, identifying himself as a hopeful agnostic. This pastor began examining the tenets of the faith. And so he would bring up a new question each week, but he would always aim the conversation towards disbelief or skepticism. And so she goes on to say, you know, the virgin birth, it doesn't matter. The resurrection, it probably happened, but you don't really have to believe it. The atonement, well, that would be nope. Um, and the Bible, God forbid you believe scripture was inherent. Her faith was being slowly undermined by this pastor who who no longer believed. In a sense, he went along with the cultural answers, the answers of society, rather than holding on in faith to, to, um, to, to the orthodox teachings of the, of the scriptures. He would use the old words of faith, but he always meant something new. Um, it's, it's a, happens, you know, uh, Alyssa defines it as progressive Christianity. Christianity has moved on to something new. And she says her faith was almost lost. It went through a crisis of faith amidst all of this. And she didn't know where to turn. 
And then she was hearing on the radio um, a teacher who, who calmly was able to a- answer questions. And it says, this teacher, one by one, with skillful precision, he wisely and logically answered them, the, the questions that were brought up, the same ones that she had been struggling with, with the tranquil tone of a person who has heard the question a thousand times before, nearly every one of the clever arguments the progressive pastor had wielded in class was answered. And I just want to kind of finish this with her admonition. He says, if you also feel as if you're losing your mooring because of deep hurt, doubt, or a progressive pastor's persuasive-sounding arguments, please hear me. There are answers. I began uncovering them by listening to the daily radio broadcast of a gifted apologist as the mom of a newborn and a toddler. I didn't have time to read, but I could listen. But her point being, there are answers to these, and you can find them. And I would say, if, if you're being hit with questions and doubts, it is okay to, to ask them of maybe more mature Christians whether you want to talk to me or one of the elders or just a, a believer you know who's grounded and solid in their faith, there are answers for these tougher questions that get thrown out. Um, and in fact, when we go through those questions, I think our faith grows in the end. When we face on head on some of the hard questions about the Bible and what it means, um, we can come out of that stronger and be even more confident that God is who he said he is and that the Son of God came for our salvation. Know this. If you want to follow Jesus Christ, faith in Christ is counterculture, countercultural. Your faith will run against the culture of the majority of, of the people. Jesus says, if you belong to the world... It would love you as its own. But as it is, you do not belong to the world. I have called you or chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. I think we got used to, in, in our time in the church, the church being the dominant voice in our culture. From the post-World War II up until the the last 20 years or so, the, cult, the, the church did have a strong voice about what our culture would look like. And it has become uncomfortable to see that, that power diminish as the church has gotten smaller within, within America. But realize the norm throughout church history is the church is a minority within the culture. That we are that countercultural voice that points people to the truth. That God, and God can use that for his purposes. Four things that I think will help us understand this. First of all, is don't be surprised when your faith in Christ is challenged. If maybe you grew up in the church and you go off to college for the first time, right? Don't be surprised if you encounter people who don't believe or even hostile to belief in, belief in Christ. It, it happens. And don't let it shock you. Don't let it scare you. Um, 1 Peter 4, 4 says, they, they, are, they are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse upon you, right? They're like, why don't you do all the stuff that we're doing? Oh, I, I was taught differently. And that's, 
part of how that. So um, the second thing to know, our witness shines the brightest when things are the darkest, right? Our distinctiveness actually shines out, out more clearly when the dominant culture goes a different direction. Philippians 2 says, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. We hold on to this firmly. Note how the, the way we're different is one, one big way, we do everything without grumbling or arguing, Right? It's not even about like our moral behaviors. Sometimes it's just having a good attitude. Actually, it can be a very distinctive thing in our faith in Christ that we're, we're not relentlessly negative because we have a hope and a joy that outshines all that. A third thing, if, as we realize our faith is counterculture, stand firm in one spirit for the gospel message. Philippians 1 says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. One of the problems is sometimes Christians end up fighting over secondary and debatable issues. Instead of, you know, fighting to hold on to the gospel, we end up fighting over things that are, are secondary issues. Um, recently, I've uh, read, in fact, I've read it twice now in the last year, um, a book called Finding the Right Hills to Die On by Gavin Ortland. And I, I would commend it to you. I guess Ray Ortland, his grandfather, was a pastor here. And so he's now a pastor, third generation. And he talks about what are the things, what are the hills we do die on? The truths that we know are clear from Scripture. And then what are the things that it's okay if another believer thinks differently on? And it's important to understand that distinction so that we're not fighting over things that, that only distract us from the, the, the true message. And then the fourth point. We are a joyful, countercultural community. We do not respond with anger or, or hate against those who oppose us. We will face opposition. We don't respond in kind. Uh, Jesus said, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Romans 12, Paul says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. We are a joyful, countercultural community. Our joy is our strength. It's how God works through us. It's our joyful determination to be faithful to God that he can use. Um, we talked last week about how when we answer someone, we answer with gentleness and respect. Or we, we are, our words are full of grace. So I believe that God has called us together here at East Glenville and given us this mission of loving people, loving others, as we learn to follow Jesus. Let me, let me ask two things. And I, um, as we go about this mission, first of all, what are we not to be? And, and I'm looking for like one word answers. And I'm, I'm, I want you to call out. So in other words, we're to not be defensive. 
What else are we to not be as we do this mission? Not not self-righteous. Not arrogant. Not disrespectful. Not judgmental. Not afraid. Okay, good. Good answers. Now, what are we are to be about? As we go about the mission of holding out the word of life, what are we to be? I'll do one word, bold. What else? Kind, loving, thankful, listeners, a light, humble, sense of humor, absolutely, good steward, gentle, encouraging, generous, faithful, inviting, Joyful, you hit him, excellent. May that be how God is at work in our midst. People of God, friends at East Glenville Church, let's ask God to to make us all of those things as we hold out the word of life. Father, we are convinced that you are so good, you're the best thing we've ever found, and there's no one like you. And our heart's desire is for more and more people to discover who you are, We pray that somehow our lives, our words, our fellowship here, our our unity together as a church may somehow be used to invite others into that kind of relationship that they might know you, they might come to know your truth and your love. May your spirit empower us for such a mission. In Jesus' name, amen.